Before we get started, I am popping my head above the metaphorical parapet to offer a content warning. In this episode, we talk about the author Thomas Pynchon and include some fairly dark and very irreverent, though not detailed, discussion of suicide in relation to one of his books, as well as a brief mention of Nazism. Consider yourself warned. Welcome to Too Much Not Enough, a podcast about the obsessions of two very intense people. I'm Emma Winston. I'm Darius Kazemi, and today we're going to talk to you about Thomas Pinchon. I'm saying Pinchon because that is apparently how he pronounces his name. We know this from a Simpsons episode that he appeared on once. What do you think, Thomas Pinchon? Um, these wings are delicious. I'll put this recipe in the Gravity's Rainbow Cookbook. Thomas Ruggles Pynchon. Good name. Good strong name. Yeah. Okay, so this is my topic this week. This is one of my obsessions. From the ages of about, I'd say 12 to 16, I was very interested in conspiracy theories. And so I used to read all sorts of books on various different conspiracies, ranging from real actual conspiracies like U.S. government coups and that sort of thing, all the way to you know, space aliens are mind-controlling a reptilian invasion that is happening on planet Earth, that kind of thing. I too love that stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Except I indulged it through things like (laughs) internet forums rather than actual literature. And I do think we have a future episode coming up about at least like the conspiratorial mind. But anyway, I was really into that. And and I was reading a book by Robert Atten Wilson, who wrote the Illuminatus trilogy and a bunch of other kind of classic sort of new agey type fiction and nonfiction, and was kind of a counterculture voice of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And he had a book that was an encyclopedia of conspiracies that was released in like the 90s, sort of during the height of the X-Files craze, when Aliens and conspiracies were just like a hot thing and you could find all sorts of stuff out there about it. And in this encyclopedia of conspiracies, one of the things that is mentioned is the crying of Lot 49. It has its own entry Ah, in this encyclopedia and it has a little sort of explanation of the plot of the crying of Lot 49, which centers around a conspiracy theory or multiple conspiracy theories, perhaps, Mm -hmm. and basically just recommends the book to the reader. And, you know, I was like a impressionable 16 year old when I read this and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take a book recommendation. So I went ahead and I read the crying of Lot 49. I think I was 17 when I got around to it. And I loved it. I loved it so much that I kept it in my backpack at school just all the time to like pull out to reference whenever. (laughs) And it actually came in handy once when I had a substitute English teacher who was one of those like substitute teachers who was just like really fantastic. I mean, my actual regular teachers were fantastic, but this guy was just on another level. And I was chatting with him after class once about something or other. I don't remember quite what we were talking about. It was probably something related to conspiracies or whatever. And he goes, oh, Darius, um, have you ever read Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon? And I was like, no, but, and I produced The Crying of Lot 49 from my bag, and he was suitably impressed. And the next day he came in with his copy of Gravity's Rainbow and gave it to me. So I have this British first edition paperback of Gravity's Rainbow, which is great to have because it's one of the editions where the page numbering matches up to all the scholarly work. Mm -hmm. I had that and I read it that summer while I was on a family vacation. And Gravity's Rainbow became my favorite novel ever. I think it still is my favorite novel. So that was sort of my personal introduction to the works 
of Thomas Pinchon. So Crying of Lot 49 was your introduction. Yes. Is that why you suggested it to me as an introduction? Um, no, I recommend it to everybody because it is both his shortest work and it displays all of his quirks and idiosyncrasies as a writer in a single small volume. So it's basically like it doesn't take much effort to read the book. Okay. And if you dislike it, absolutely don't read anything else he's ever done. Mm -hmm. But if you really <laughs> like it, then by all means, tackle one of his 900 page, mm -hmm. you know, monster novels. So what I haven't talked about is like what actually like makes him one of my favorite authors. Okay, I will say he is my favorite author, period. And reading through Lot 49 that first time, it's like a combination of like really bad puns and really lowbrow humor and also lots of metaphors about electrical engineering and information theory and physics and also madcap conspiracy type stuff. People like to complain about his writing in that they say that it's not coherent as a plot and you don't really care about any of the characters and it mostly is just seems like Ooh. which i actually disagree with this but this is what people I, say I, I disagree yeah i don't know i like a novel to be a bunch of really interesting things thrown together and shaken up <laughs> you know mm. like that's that's how i like a novel to be it was probably the first author that i ever read that i felt like he somehow was writing to me personally mm -hmm. it feels that way because it's so laser focused on things that I really care about you know, mm. in a lot of ways that other things aren't. For listeners of this podcast, as we mentioned earlier, I said, okay, Emma, you should read Crying of Lot 49. We had also already watched the movie Inherent Vice. Which is great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is P.T. Anderson's adaptation of Thomas Pynchon's relatively recent novel Inherent Vice. Which I've also now started reading. Right, yeah. So so for context, I've read all of his books, and Emma has read one of his books yep. and seen a movie adaptation and read part of the book that the movie was mm -hmm. based on. So first, I just want to say, Emma, what were your impressions of The Crying of Lot 49? I mean, I really enjoyed it. I felt like some of the things that you said to me about it were slightly misleading. <laughs> Okay. I don't know how much to spoil it. I'd spo go, how spoil much can away. We spoil it? Go for it. Specifically, like the use of language and names and stuff. Yeah. I was looking for clues because of things that you'd said about all of the names and the use of language being really extended puns. Right. And a lot of the time, it's just used in a kind of throwaway manner to confuse you even more. Yes. Which is kind of the point. Right. And it felt like you were in on the conspiracy. Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> in his long form work, he has more room to do really extended puns because he just has mm -hmm. more room to work with. But By the end, I sort of wondered if some of that was the point. Like the fact that the only person that she properly connects with emotionally in the entire book doesn't have a name. Right. Seems potentially important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's part of like an anonymous organization. Right. One of the things that I like about Pynchon's writing that's not stylistic, but is actually a content. I mean, it's everything, but he's often talking about a thing that I explore in my bot work a lot, which is this idea of apophenia, this idea of seeing signal mm. where there is noise. Which, oh boy, did I get sucked in by that. <laughs> right. I did the thing that I assume you're supposed to do, where I was doing exactly what the protagonist does, and I was looking for links, and I was looking for symbolism, and not considering until midway through the book that the entire thing 
might not be happening at all. Right. I mean, despite the fact that that's extremely similar to, you know, how much of inherent vice is actually happening and how much of it is just a drug trip. And yet, (laughs) I got entirely sucked in and I did not make the connection until she makes the connection way through the book. There's a scene in Crying Up Lot 49 where Oedipa, the main character, is uh, looking at the stars and she asks, you know, shall I project a world? And she's thinking about constellations and how we as humans can't help but put patterns onto what are random clusterings of celestial bodies. And that scene really stuck with me and stuck with me for my whole life. And it has been something that I've gone back to over and over again when I think about the ways that humans process information and like massive overloading amounts of information. Which bits do you choose to pick out as significant? Right, right. The bit that stuck with me actually was the part where it's well after that, I think, where she convinces herself that she probably is just hallucinating and kind of goes on a walk to try and not look for patterns and comes across this group of children who are doing some sort of terrifying jump rope thing (laughs) that turns out to be completely connected to all of the clues that she's looking for. And she's like, you're not real. This isn't real. This isn't happening. But it is happening. (laughs) It's as real as everything else in the book. And that, for some reason, just freaked my nut out, as Danny Dyer (laughs) would say. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you ask most, you know, there are pension scholars because he's like part of the white male 20th century canon of authors. So there, of course, there are pension scholars out there. And if you ask them, you know, to list themes in his work, paranoia is always in the top three. Because mm-hmm. he is very good at both writing about and evoking paranoia. It worked on me. Hey! Hey! All right. So Pynchon has this like reputation as a very difficult author. It's similar to kind of like how Infinite Jest has a reputation as like a difficult book to read. Mm. And, you know, not speaking to Infinite Jest, but speaking to just Pynchon, I do think that his writing is very dense and it is very unusual in that, you know, he will introduce a new character every page, roughly, a new mm. a new named yeah. character once per page. Yeah, I had to write down a list of the characters. And that's actually one of the reasons I find reading him in ebook form much easier than in mm. uh, on paper, because I can search and go back and like, wait, is this the same person who they talked to 300 pages ago? Yeah. And I do think his writing is dense and elusive. But also it's like really beautiful. Mm. I think he's a very beautiful prose stylist. I just love what he does with words. He does a really good job of Mm. just putting one word after another to great effect. Yeah, I mean, to me, the sort of density of description didn't feel like it confused it. Like the plot is confusing. The plot is difficult. But to me, the writing style wasn't particularly... There's like a paragraph describing why... The husband is so sensitive. I can't remember anyone's name. Uh, mucho. Mucho mas. And why he stopped being a used car salesman. Right. There's <laughs> like this long, long paragraph where, hang on, I'm going to find it. A salad of despair. That is what the <laughs> nice. used cars are described yes. as, which I think is wonderful. I love it so much. In a grey dressing of ash. Yes. Awesome. Yes. God. I am not sure if we were supposed to sympathize with him at that point, but I sure as hell did. Yeah, yeah. He seems like a nice man. Doesn't he like drop so much acid that he starts being able to do Fourier transforms in his head? That was one of the things I was super into Fourier transforms as a teen. So this was one of those things where I was just like, oh my God, is he writing this for me? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I felt like the bit where he drops loads of acid at the end, you're not meant to come away from that being like, maybe I should drop acid. Right. But he does make it sound like it's really great. So, <laughs> yeah. 
I realised that, you know, dropping acid is one of the things that leads all of the men in Oedipus' life to ultimately abandon her and leave her completely alone. But also, it does make acid sound pretty great. So, (laughs) you know, swings and roundabouts. (laughs) And to give some context, this was published in 1966. So Mm -hmm. right in the middle of the sort of American drug decade, basically. Uh, At least psychedelic decade. Well, just he just does a load of acid right. for a Nazi psychiatrist, right. which is unfortunate. Yes, the Nazi psychiatrist Deeply is, what is his name, Dr. Hilarious? Dr. Hilarious, who you'd think the first red flag would have been him calling her at three in the morning in the first 20 pages of the book and being like, oh, I didn't wake you, did I? <laughs> and she's just like, no, it's fine. It's, like, it's not fine. <laughs> You know you can just get another psychiatrist. Yeah, this is, yeah. (laughs) But she doesn't. Right. That was actually one of the really interesting things about it, that I was going through various sort of Cliff's Notes websites to see if anybody else had said this. But it seems like she spends the entire book having things done to her and just going along with it. That, for me, was almost the sort of core of the narrative, is that she's completely passive. She just kind of does what other people tell her. Yes, and there are certainly some feminist critiques of this book, Crying a Lot 49. I wish I'd found them. She's the main character, but she's also basically the only woman in the book. Mm. And she's this passive, sort of along-for-the-ride type of person, which I do think is a fair criticism. I also think that all of his protagonists are kind of just swept along, either in the tide of history or the tide of something else. I mean, I assume that it's relevant that she's a woman in that I don't know my 1960s American literature, but I can't imagine it's particularly common to have not just a woman, but specifically a housewife as the protagonist of what's basically a detective story. Yes. Yeah. That to me seems fairly unusual. Yeah. And like she manages to do a lot while mostly having stuff done. Right. Well, and if you think about like Inherent Vice, that's basically the same as the main character of Inherent Vice as well. Yeah, that's true. Even though he's a man and he's literally a detective, it's mostly Mm -hmm. things happening to him and very occasionally he manages to like have some agency. Mm -hmm. In Gravity's Rainbow, which is Pynchon's most notorious book, also his most famous book, also probably his best book, Gravity's Rainbow, the main character, is this American who goes to, it takes place during World War II, towards the end of World War II. Main character is this guy, Tyrone Slothrop. Good name. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like every time you mention a character, I'm just gonna be like, good name. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, and he's hanging out in London with his best friend, Ronald Cherry Coke. Uh, (laughs) And... (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Anyway, uh, and he basically, over the course... (laughs) No, it's fine. No, it's good. This is why I like Thomas Pynchon, because he makes makes me break down laughing at times. Oh, God. But, uh, But, yeah, so Slothrop goes to London. Basically, the book takes place in sort of the dissolution of the entire European state apparatus from about a year before the end of World War II. And then the book ends about a year after World War II ends. And so in like the six months after the formal VE day, navigating these zones that are kind of states, but kind of not, and no one's sure who owns what anymore. And like, what's France and what's Germany and even down to like, you know, what currency do we use right now and and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so as the world kind of disintegrates around him. His ego also disintegrates to the point where, you know, technically a spoiler, but not really. Also, it's a 50-year-old book. I haven't read it yet. (laughs) 
Well, also, this is a plot point in a pension novel. So really, like, about as irrelevant to anything as anything else. To the point where his ego disintegrates and distributes and he sort of becomes an urban legend. Interesting. But, like, is aware of himself becoming an urban legend as it is happening. It's really interesting. So he's this main character of this book who, I mean, compared to most protagonists in pension novels, is actually has a fair amount of agency. But in the end, even Slothrop is scattered to the winds, almost literally. Mm. So we're talking about Pynchon on this podcast because he's an obsession of mine. Like his work is an obsession of mine. And I want to make that distinction because, you know, we had that sort of autobiography thing that we did Mm. for our second episode. And there are a lot of people who are obsessed with Pynchon, the author. And it's because he has this really juicy biographical story. Does he? Yes, where basically he had kind of a, you know, normal life. I think he served in the U.S. Navy, I think, during the Korean War. He went to Cornell University, where one of his professors was Nabokov while he was there. Oh, I did not know that. He wrote his first book in, I think it was 61 or maybe 59 when it came out. So he was in his 20s. What was his first book? His first book is called V. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, Just the letter V. And it's a great book, and it's a, and it's an astonishing debut novel. Really great. V, remarkable novel, uh, instantly thrust him into sort of a literary limelight. And at that point, he basically decided, nope, I want nothing to do with the literary world or any of the fame that it can bring or anything like that. I think the last known photograph of Pynchon, aside from some dodgy paparazzi photos, is from his military days when he was 19 years old. Oh, wow. So that's like the only frontal face-forward picture that you can find of him. He's like 19. Mm -hmm. So he just opted out of this whole thing. I think while he was writing Lot 49, he like moved to Mexico and didn't tell anybody where he went except for close friends. And from that point on, he stayed out of the public eye. Mm -hmm. He uh, publishes approximately one book a decade. So I think he has what? One, two, three, four. He has something like seven or eight full novels Mm -hmm. and he's 80 years old right so you know maybe one book every seven years that kind of thing Mm. there's some short stories as well right there's a book of short stories yeah that's called slow learner and that mostly collected his juvenilia so the stuff Mm. that he wrote like while he was at cornell okay and it's interesting because he provides a lot of commentary on those stories in Mm. the forward to the book, which is really unusual because you don't usually hear from him in the first person. Mm. Although at the same time, you kind of only hear from him. In the well, and that's person. why I was bringing up our like autobiography <laughs> and fiction, you know, okay. uh, podcast because like I do think his books are very personal and they are kind of like jumping into his head in a lot of ways. I'm not saying that you know mm. he's a mastermind of a conspiracy or that he you know necessarily does a lot of the things that are in his books but his interests jump off the page Mm. he puts lots and lots of research into his books most of his books take place during a historical era that he's clearly put a lot of research into Mm. he's very interested in science and engineering we do know that he did work for boeing the airplane company as a draftsman for a while Okay. So, you know, he was a professional engineer for a while, which, again, tugs at my heartstrings. Mm. He has a keen interest in science and math. He's really interested in social justice in a lot of ways, too. It, I don't think it comes out so much in Lot 49, although in Lot 49, the, whole, the entire, I, think, mm. I mean, the entire waste system in the book 
is an alternate network. Essentially, he's very interested in subaltern people. I was going to say, it's like the whole thing is based on sort of countercultural resistance, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yes. And also the sort of the one coherent thing that she comes out of it thinking is that America is structured around kind of like groups based on sort of need and marginalization, and yeah. which is kind of sort of only discussed briefly, but it's the closest thing that you get to a conclusion, I think. Right. I agree with that, I think. I'm struck by like the kindness and humanity of his books and how he he really, really cares about people who are passed over by society and don't have all the same opportunities as other people for whatever reason. It's actually why my favorite book of his is not Gravity's Rainbow. It's his book that came out in 2005, I want to say, called Against the Day. It's his longest book and probably is his most dense work. Mm -hmm. It's like partly a romp through different genres of 20th century fiction. At the same time, it is very deeply about the American Union movement, the American anarchist movement. The book is called Against the Day, and it is about like, well, the day in the book is really like this grinding system that we're in all the time, and like, how do we, as individuals or as groups, face this day on a day-to-day -day basis? And like, what do we do to get through it? Mm -hmm. How do we uh, extract meaning and joy out of a life that can be very oppressive. I mean, I have to say, I did not get the compassion from Crying Floor no, 49 so no. much. So it's interesting to hear you say that because I sort of almost felt that we were supposed to laugh at the, yes. the people involved in this sort of postal counterculture. I agree with that. I don't think Lot 49, I think his shorter works don't really show that very much. Inherent Vice, I would also count in his shorter works. Mm -hmm. I think it's his longer works where that compassion really shows through. Mm -hmm. I will note that in the foreword to his book of short stories, he does go out of his way to say that he hates The Crying of Lot That's 49. That's interesting. He's sort of embarrassed <laughs> by it. I mean, it's understandable, you know, it's like his second book ever, so, mm. and I think he felt like it was sort of rushed out and he would have liked to have spent more time on it. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was really enjoyable. Yeah, ironically, it's his most popular book. But it is, it's really interesting to hear you say that the way that he writes about kind of subaltern people is like really compassionate because it's not a compassionate book. No. It's quite a mean book in a lot of ways. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it is. To everyone involved. Right. Like, it's not particularly kind to any of the characters. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> so it's interesting to hear that that is not necessarily typical of his stuff. Right. Yeah. Other things that I like about Pynchon are when I read his stuff, I'm always taking notes. It always leads me to listen to music I haven't listened to before because he has deep, deep musical references mm. in all of his books, including Lot 49. It leads me to read about bits of history that I didn't know about before. So a good chunk of like Gravity's Rainbow takes place during the Dutch genocide of the Herero people in Southwest Africa. And like, I had never heard of that genocide before. And, you know, it's a, obviously not a mm. pleasant topic, but I went and like read about it. And I read about this like stuff that you don't get taught in American schools, at least. I've learned about rocketry. I've learned about conspiracies. I've learned about the postal service in Central Europe in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I mean, I assumed all of that was fictionalized and then went away and started reading about right. it and realized that it's not all Yeah, it's fictionalized. not all fictionalized. <laughs> Turn and Taxis really did exist. Yeah, I was surprised by that. And that's why if you go in some European countries, I don't know about the UK, but in some European 
European countries, the postal horn is still the symbol of their postal service. That's why there's a postal horn emoji. It's like basically everywhere in Europe except for the UK. <laughs> right. So there you go. He does a great job of weaving real research into his fictionalized stuff as well. Mm. And it, again, that, that sort of helps with eliciting that paranoia in the reader, right? Like you think he's making it all up and then like mm. you're just out one day out in the world and you go, wait, that thing he was talking about actually yep. happened? <laughs> the next time I see something with a post horn on it, mm -hmm. I was going to ask, what's with the songs? Yeah, the songs. <laughs> that was like the most confusing thing in the whole book to me. There's so many songs. <laughs> I will give some context to people who maybe haven't read his books. His characters or his situations tend to break out into song a lot. They sure do. They do quite a bit. Is it always diegetic? Is there always a reason for it? Because yes. there's like the band in Crying Lots 49. Yeah, it is definitely always diegetic. It's like, you know, a bunch of characters are hanging out in a bar and someone pulls out a ukulele and then they all start to sing. That kind of thing happens a lot in Pynchon novels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like flicking through and there really are so many songs. Yeah. I think the songs are great, especially when he very rarely does this, but sometimes he'll actually give you a song to sing it to the tune of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of those, I think. When he does that, I especially like it because then I go listen to the song that he's referencing, which is usually something I haven't heard before, mm -hmm. and then I'll put the words to it. But for me personally, I just think it's some of that wackiness again. And I know that he is very influenced by like 1930s and 1940s American cartoons. Mm -hmm. His bibliography is very short. But one thing in his bibliography is he did the liner notes for Rhino's retrospective collection of Spike Jones's orchestral arrangements for cartoons. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. He's a documented fan of cartoons. And, and when you read his stuff, it is very cartoonish at times. Is that why the only place we've heard him speak in adulthood is The Simpsons. Yeah, I believe so. I mean, he's a huge fan of The Simpsons. That is also a known mm -hmm. thing. You know, he doesn't <laughs> seek fame, but when, like, I think a Simpsons producer tried to reach out to him through his agent, he was like, <laughs> yes, I will break 50 years of silence to go on your show. <laughs> He does a lot of like wild swinging back and forth in mood. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> I've noticed. There's some very somber section of Gravity's Rainbow that then immediately breaks out into a literal pie fight. <laughs> uh, like Three Stooges style, like everyone's flinging pies at each other in the facility where they are manufacturing rockets to bomb London with. They're just having a pie fight because that's. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I'd say the bit that made me laugh the most in Crying of Lot 49, I felt really bad for laughing at. Which was? In that story that I can't remember who the character is who tells the story about the um, engineering executive who is planning his own suicide. He gets fired and loses his job to a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. And then he spends three weeks trying to decide whether or not to kill himself. And then... His wife comes home with an efficiency expert who she's going to fuck and they find him like ready to kill himself. And the efficiency expert says it takes him nearly three weeks to decide, you know, how long it would have taken the IBM 7094 12 microseconds. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. That is what I love. That, for me, was, like, the funniest thing in the whole book. And then I was like, look at yourself. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's like pinching in a nutshell right there. And, again, to put this in historical perspective, this is a guy who's writing about, like, 
paranoia and surveillance and computers and essentially automation through computers back in 1966. Mm -hmm. And he's writing about the dissolution of what is truth, what is reality. The whole Pizzagate thing during the 2016 election reads like a pension novel. There was more than one moment where I thought about Pizzagate, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. But, you know, he gets a pass because he was dreaming this up in 1966. Indeed. And I just think he's very prescient. He's so ahead of the game on so many things, especially his work in the 60s and 70s. I think he was like really thinking very far ahead, mm. which is why his stuff just feels so relevant today. Mm. There's whole essays that have been written about how Gravity's Rainbow is like a prefiguration of the internet itself. Gravity's Rainbow came out in 77, 78, I want to say. So like ARPANET, it was around, but there wasn't really like hypertext or anything like that. Mm. But in a lot of ways, his stuff is very hypertextual, even though it's just a text. It's not actually hypertext. Mm. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that he's moving back and forth. He's switching genres. He's breaking out into song. One of the things that I love is not so much in Lot 49, because there's really only one narrator who's the main character. But in his other books, you'll be reading a paragraph and you're starting the paragraph and you know that it's from the perspective of one person. And then just over the course of the paragraph, it's like a gentle gradient and you suddenly realize that you're inhabiting the perspective of a different character mm -hmm. just from the way the language is being used. And I love that. Not a lot of authors can pull that off successfully. Did his other books end with incredibly cruel twists? Because the ending of Crying of Love 49 is an incredibly cruel, like, to the reader twist. Yeah, um, no. Okay. Uh, Lot 49 is the only one of his books that just puts the cake right in front of your face and then pulls it away before you can eat it type of thing it sure does it's definitely an infuriating ending to a lot of people myself included mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways but um but then i also don't know how else it could have ended right exactly and i, think I feel like it would be more dissatisfying to have an answer one way or another i agree completely and i think that's why he only did it to such an extreme for this one short novella mm. his other books I mean, all of his books have weird endings because he's a weird guy who writes weird books, but not with the explicit formalized cruelty of <laughs> the ending of, mm -hmm. of Lot 49. And to the listeners, when we're talking about cruelty, we mean like narrative cruelty, not like, oh, he depicts torture at the end or something like that. It's just he ends the book on a note that if you are the kind of person who likes your mysteries answered, you are not going to be very pleased with. It's not even in a way that's like... I'm not going to conclude this and give you a neat answer and here's why. Although there is a little bit of that earlier on when she's, I think I think she describes America as being made up of like storm systems or something. Yeah. And that's the closest thing to an actual conclusion that we get. Right. And then the actual ending of the book is just like, it just cuts off. Right. There's yeah. just nothing. It leaves you with literally nothing. It essentially stops halfway through a thought, more or less. Yeah, pretty much, which is really mean. And I also don't know how else he could have ended it. Right, so. right. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of very experimental flourishes that happen in his books all the time. Like, uh, you know, we talked about the breaking out into song. There's also in Against the Day, which I mentioned earlier, there's like maybe, I mean, again, it's a pension novel and it's like 1,100 pages long and there's, I think, a thousand, oh there's like a thousand characters or something. But there's four or five sort of main plot threads that keep coming back in and, and twisting together. Mm -hmm. And each one of those plot threads is written in a different style of English literature from the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a group called the Chums of Chance who bookend, they open and close the book and appear at various important moments. Uh, and they're these basically boys' adventurers. When they are part of the narrative, the narrative is written like a boys' adventure novel from the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. What's the American equivalent to the Famous Five? I'm assuming it's like the Famous Five. The Hardy Boys are probably the most mm-hmm. well-known American version of that. And then at times it's written very much like a parody of a Lovecraft story, but he's oh. a much better writer than Lovecraft, so uh, it's actually terrifying. <laughs> There's a hard-boiled detective, so he's writing like Raymond Chandler Mm -hmm. for a good part of the novel whenever that character's around. There's a Western that's written like every character, at least is my theory, at least, my reading of the book. Each one of these main half-dozen or dozen characters carries their own literary genre with him Mm -hmm. or her, and Pynchon changes his voice depending on who is sort of like the camera, so to speak, is like focused on. Mm -hmm. What should I read next? (laughs) I mean, I think Gravity's Rainbow is the one to go ahead and read it's a hell of a read it's a big boy yeah it's i mean it's not even his longest book but (laughs) it's a long book and i mean this sounds cliche but it's a tour de force it's just incredible i've read it probably 10 times at this point just because i can keep coming back to it and i keep pulling more and more and more out of it every time i come back to it it's a lot of pages 10 times one reason why i'm not as widely read in fiction as i am in a lot of other areas of life is because when I sit down to read a new fiction book, I get partway through it and I go, eh, I could be reading Gravity's Rainbow instead. And then I go back and I read Gravity's <laughs> Rainbow. It's kind of a nice problem to have. Crying of Lot 49 is the first fiction that I've read in ages. And it has kind of made me want to start reading fiction again. Fantastic. Hey, fiction. Hey. Yeah, the other half of writing. Or fiction. <laughs> fiction. <laughs> so... This episode of Too Much Not Enough is the last episode of season one. Emma and I have had to like take a break on this, but we're going to be coming back in December with hopefully a pretty regular weekly schedule from now on. We were very regular until you were working two jobs and my life fell apart. Yes. In our defense. (laughs) So we kind of have to like leave some time for that stuff to kind of... The dust to settle. And then we'll be back just in time for the holidays. Hell yeah. I want to learn about something I don't know anything about and I want it to be tied into Christmas somehow and I'm excited. Thanks for listening to us and we'll see you in December. We'll be back. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about nature's IBM 7094. This has been Too Much Not Enough. I'm Darius Kazemi, a.k.a. Darius at friend.camp on Mastodon or tinysubversions.com. I'm Emma Winston, a.k.a. Deerful on Twitter, formatted deer like the animal underscore F-U-L, or Deerful with no underscore on mastodon.social, or you can find me on emmawinston.me. 